everyone. Welcome back to Workplace Therapy. Given how much of ourselves we dedicate to our work, it's not surprising that the workplace can be a significant source of trauma in our lives. So if we're going to work together, we need to learn how to heal together too. My name is Skylar Lewandowski, and I'm here with my co-hosts Scott Arietta and Sarah Gold. So let's begin today's session. In the current market environment, many of us wouldn't be surprised if our companies froze hiring or even conducted layoffs. But we would be surprised if we were suddenly locked up at our computer with no communication and it took tweeting our CEO to find out if we still had a job. This is exactly what happened to Haraldar Thorfleeson. Sorry if I mispronounced your name, <laughs> who goes by Holly. Holly had been locked out of his computer for nine days without any communication from Twitter when he decided to try to get answers from his CEO, Elon Musk. Thus ensued a very interesting exchange. Holly asked Musk if he still had a job, and Musk responded asking Holly what he even did at Twitter. Not the greatest start. But Holly responded with his recent accomplishments, including saving the company over 500k in a SaaS contract and leading prioritization of all design projects. Musk responded with laughing emojis. Yeah, this was going downhill really quickly. <laughs> so Musk went on to question Holly's work ethic, his disability, and accommodations for said disability, and overall call him, quote-unquote, the worst. Eventually, Holly and Musk had a private conversation off of Twitter where they seem to have resolved the issues, uh, and Holly is still considering working at Twitter. But I really wanted to break this down and start at the beginning. So, Sarah, what are your thoughts on having Holly have to tweet Musk just to find out if he had a job? I think I am having the same reaction as any listener would have with this story, it is the perfect case study and example of the way not to do business from a variety of perspectives. The fact that now for a company as big as Twitter, is it okay for the CEO not to know what every single individual does and impacts? Sure. That's fair. That's fine. But for you as the employee to have to seek out whether you have job security is absolutely awful. And then to focus on a person's disability and accommodation needs violates so many ethical issues and federal guidelines that are there to protect human beings. But I think that this is a symptom of a bigger issue that we have going on in large companies, especially tech companies, unfortunately. And I know we've all worked for one before where we have leaders who do not understand employment law, accommodations, protected class, performance management, and they assume that because they have the money and the resources that they're owed the title. And from a very traditional perspective, with that title comes great responsibility. And that's why there's so many programs out there with MBAs and certifications and letters behind your name, because when it comes to people's livelihoods and their jobs, 
like this particular individual who had been there, you have to know and understand ethically what is at stake and what you legally can and can't do. Because it's not just a protection of the employee, it's a protection for the company. And when folks like Elon Musk make these statements without having any kind of shared communication with stakeholders or checking in with HR to say like, hey, can I say this? Would this be appropriate? What would be the most ethical and rational response for me to have? You end up with stories like this over and over again. And I think this just points out it's a very extreme example, but unfortunately it's not the only example that is out there. Yeah. I mean, if I could just jump in, Sarah, I think you're absolutely right. It's not the only example that's out there. I think a piece where I might push a little is you seem to frame it as a lack of understanding of what is, um, of what is legal or what is appropriate. I actually don't think that Elon Musk has a lack of understanding that his behavior was inappropriate. Um, I think it was actually, the se- I think it was the second thing that you said, which is like, <laughs> you know, once you reach a certain level of positional authority and or wealth for which he has both, the incentive to like play by the rules or even engage with other humans as humans, it's diminished unless it's intrinsic to who you are. It's not going to come out. It's much easier to become more insular, more convinced of your own superiority because that's what your feedback loop actually communicates to you on a daily basis. I've got more money than you. I'm more powerful than you. People think I'm a genius, you know? And so therefore I'm just going to treat you however I want to, right? Because what are you going to do about it? And like, I think that unfortunately that level of like hubris and egomania kicks in at much lower levels than Elon Musk. You know, there are people who get their first manager title and man, you know, they are, um, they're on par with, you know, the pantheon of gods, like ruling over us mere mortals. Um, and so I, uh, I just think that like, that's something to watch out for. I think, you know, positional and authority and wealth are amplifiers of like who you are at your core, you know? So if you are like arrogant and egotistical and like self-involved and self-concerned times multiple billions, like in the case of Elon Musk. And I think like if you are a person who, um, who has really kind of done the work to develop empathy and compassion and understand like your own limitations as well as like the needs and strengths of others. Um, I think it's possible for people in that position to use their wealth and authority to advance the cause of humanity versus detract from it. But I actually want to like, if I can respond to that question, I know that Skylar directed it towards you, but like I was doing my own thinking about this and like, I was just thinking about it from just a tactical level. So like Elon invested his quote unquote own money and 
we can get into the financing arrangements in another podcast maybe. But, you know, he invested his own money. Like he, you know, he became CEO of, of Twitter by appointing himself there. He starts making all of these changes. And ostensibly, he is doing these things so that he is not lighting that initial investment on fire and completely making it like, you know, uh, just completely useless. Like he's trying to rehabilitate the company or so it would seem. And so if that's his goal, let's just assume that it is. Let's assume that his goal is to use his brilliance and his authority to do the things that needed to be done at Twitter all along and restore them to the glory days. Well, let's talk about whether or not his strategies are actually sound from a business strategy perspective. So if you fail to communicate layoffs, and there were, I think, a couple hundred people in this round of layoffs, so not the largest tech layoff that we've ever seen, but a significant number of people. This isn't a footnote that you can just forget. And if people in that cohort (laughs) receive no communication whatsoever to the point where it's ambiguous to them whether they work there or not, and then they send multiple emails to HR and to Elon Musk himself, and it's not being responded to for multiple days so that you have to resort to, (laughs) ironically, using the product that your company has created to tweet at your CEO in order to get his attention. That is just a case study of incompetence. That is just a huge red flag that who is, who's driving this bus? Like nobody really knows. Like people are asleep at the wheel and it, and Twitter has become a laughing stock for this reason. And so if you're trying to rehabilitate the company, you're trying to get to a place of operating profitability but you don't even know the employment status of your employees or you can't easily figure that out with like a few clicks or running of a report and it takes you multiple days and somebody tweeting at you using your own platform in order to be incentivized to get an answer. I mean, like as an investor, I'm not buying. Like those are some significant red flags for me. Like I wouldn't hire a first level manager who had a track record of letting this happen under their watch. So I think like that's a huge red flag. So I feel like shareholders, not just Twitter, but like of any company for which Elon Musk has significant ownership or input should be like rightfully a little concerned. And actually, so I know that I'm, I'm the king of bringing TikTok into these uh, into these uh, podcasts, but there was there was a TikTok I was watching the other day that really kind of like highlights just how ludicrous the situation is Twitter has become. And so they were referencing this exact same scenario, and they were talking about Circuit City. Do you remember Circuit City, Sarah? Um, do you remember Circuit City, Skylar? Is that a I thing mean, that you know? I was a child, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, did you read about it in a book somewhere or on the internet somewhere? Okay, so Circuit City for, you know, people who are much younger than I who may be listening to this podcast is essentially like Best Buy, but it was a competitor to Best Buy. It was an electronics kind of like superstore. And it went out of business, I think like in the late 90s, early aughts, something like that, a while ago. And um, this guy was talking about how when Circuit City went defunct in order to kind of advance their careers, like he and a group of friends 
knew that Circuit City was at the verge of bankruptcy, that no one was behind the wheel. And they just basically gave themselves elevated titles, said that they worked those titles at Circuit City, put each other as their own references because they knew that nobody was running the ship from Circuit City's HR perspective. And so, okay, obviously not an ethical story. Like that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that Circuit City was so defunct that that this group of people, this group of people um, knew that they had an opportunity here where there's zero accountability because nobody was like manning the ship at the end of the day. And the punchline to the story was Twitter's the new Circuit City. This happens once in a generation. Everybody give yourself elevated titles because literally nobody is checking the inbox over at Twitter's HR. And I'm like, you know, dubious strategy, but really good kind of example of, um, of just how bad this really is. That is hilarious. And yeah, you can, you can put any of us as your references and we'll we'll (laughs) say that you have your title. Uh, (laughs) And I, I think tying it back to our last episode on psychological safety, if I were at a company that I wouldn't know the next day if I could even access my computer and then wouldn't receive an email around, you know, packages around the layoff or what I could do next, that would create such an internal fear of like even just waking up for work the next day. So I think I'm sorry for Twitter right now. And hopefully there is somebody who's kind of turning this ship around. But I did want to go back to something that Sarah said around disability. And I think it was really interesting that Musk even brought up Holly's disability in the first place. I mean, Musk has been very open about his own Asperger's diagnosis, but I'm still confused on like how he thought questioning Holly's disability was even like related to the question of, do I work at Twitter? So Sarah, I would love to hear your thoughts on like, why do you think he even brought that up in the first place? I think it comes from a place of defensiveness with him. And because as Scott mentioned, there's this idea of there's no incentive to play by the rules is what I think you said, Scott. He doesn't want to play by the rules. So he's going to throw everything out there and say like, yeah, you not only don't have a job, but what you think you did doesn't matter. And by the way, did you know you had a disability too? Let's let everybody know about it. It's to him, at least he appears that this is just a very laughable situation and scenario. And so I think it's him highlighting uh, his own defensiveness because he people came at him about these comments. And so it was him defending himself to say, well, no, you know, he also has a disability. Yeah, I think this is you're exactly right, Sarah. And this reminds me of um, like there's actually a term for this called an ad hominem attack, which is basically like somebody has an a position, right? And rather than engaging with the position, because how are you going to engage with this position if you're Elon Musk? 
Like, I mean, you could engage with it and say like, uh, oops, like we messed up. Like that wasn't acceptable. Like he doesn't have that kind of character. So he's not going to do that. So what, what if you are a billionaire egomaniac, like in charge of a company, what's the way that you're going to respond to that ad hominem attack, which is basically like, I'm going to ignore your question completely and I'm going to change the narrative so that it's all about you and how you weren't doing anything here to begin with. Like you didn't really have any value here. Laying you off was like not consequential. And like, why would I have given more than I, an iota of thought to that? Because it's like, you're not very important anyway. Right. And I think that there's lots of examples of this being done, especially in politics, where it's like very par for the course to not actually engage with an idea or a question. And like it's almost like an art form or like an expectation to or a competency um, to uh, to basically deflect and like turn it against that person's character, ridicule them discredit them so that the question that they asked or the position that they're maintaining is just irrelevant, just like them. They're irrelevant. And I think like that's what Elon was really trying to do in this situation. Um, but he just made himself look bad, honestly. I think what's so sad about this whole situation is something that Skylar mentioned, which is like, I can't even imagine not knowing my status when I woke up that day for work. And, you know, people won't be talking about this topic, you know, even a year from now, it'll be something that passes. But for this person, this was so traumatic, that this will impact their life for a really long time. And I think it just goes to say, how careful we have to be when we are working with human beings. And it goes back to that idea of workplace therapy, that there are things that can happen in a matter of moments. This whole, you know, discussion that happened was so quick. And yet the impact was felt across the world. So there's almost like this secondary trauma, I think, that happens too when you read situations like this because people are like, yeah, I experienced something like that too. Or what if that happens to me? Or, or you know, what if I'm afraid to put that I have a disability because someone's going to call it out. It's terrifying. And so the more we address it so that folks like this can be seen and heard the more that it makes it hopefully organizationally and socially unacceptable to behave in such a way that you completely erode someone's ability to move forward in their life. Yeah. I, I agree with that a hundred percent. And just kind of, again, piggybacking off of the momentum that you've created there with the discussion, Sarah, I think if you play out like what are the impacts of this behavior beyond just this isolated incident, and you mentioned the impact to people with disabilities and how it might disincentivize them or create fear to putting themselves out there for fear of being shamed publicly, um, I also think that this sets a precedent for other leaders within Twitter Right. Like and other leaders who might idolize Elon Musk who aren't in the context of Twitter, like Elon prior to this, prior to this purchase was pretty widely regarded as like a 
as a brilliant genius and inspirational leader. He's a little hardcore and he was a little quirky, but look at all the good that he's doing for the world. He's the savior that we don't deserve, right? That's Those are things that I've heard about Elon Musk prior to him purchasing Twitter. And so there's a lot of people out there who are still fans of Elon and like who he is and what he is doing. And by him engaging in this behavior, what he is doing is he is normalizing it. Not only is he normalizing it, he's condoning it. He's saying, be like me, like shame people in your organization that disagree with you. Tell them who's boss, make your power and authority known. And I think there are people for whom that's like very, like it resonates with them on a visceral level, you know? And, um, and, but I mean, even if you just isolate the impact to Twitter, so let's play this out logically. So Elon sets this example, whatever leaders are left at Twitter say, this is who you got to be to be in the King's inner circle. So I'm going to be that way. I'm going to lead my teams that way. And then you institute fear and you institute talking behind people's backs and you institute disengagement. And, you know, before long, Productivity is going to drop off a cliff and it's already dropped off a cliff. Productivity, quality, innovation, all of these things you can see, like, you know, Elon complained that Twitter was too brittle because they tried to push an update and it broke the other day. And I'm like, is Twitter brittle or are you breaking it? (laughs) Like, you know, it's like, I'm not saying that it was a perfect place before he got there, but I am saying, I think you're underweighting the impact that you are having culturally. And I think something like this is going to give his leadership team permission to just be, um, to just like emulate like his behavior. And I like, if you're from Twitter and you're listening to this podcast and you're one of the good ones, stay strong because it's like, it's important that in spite of the behaviors that are modeled by a quote unquote, leader or positional leader anyway, like Elon Musk, your light will shine brighter in that darkness than it would in a completely functional environment. And Scott, I think that's really important to to talk about how this conversation could have been handled differently and maybe made a newsworthy conversation in a totally positive and different way. So what do you think that Musk could have responded like in order to say, I mean, I mean, the whole start starting point of getting laid off without any communication is already pretty bad. So how do you, you know, get any positivity out of that response from Musk? What would you say on your tweet? Um, I love this question because Skylar, as you know, um, a large part of my background in the area of customer experiences the strategic work that I did for a large financial services company, specifically around service recovery. So how do you restore confidence when things go wrong? And one of the things that was entertaining to me, or got a little chuckle of when you, when you just said it right now is like, how could you make this newsworthy in a different way? And like one of the primary tenets of service recovery is like, don't screw up so bad that your screw up is newsworthy to begin with, right? So job one would be 
do not do a layoff without communicating it to people to the point where they have to tweet at you in order to get an answer. So like, okay, so that would have kept you out of the news, right? There would be no news article, but that would have been a preferred outcome to what happened. Okay, so let's say that that's off the table. Like the screw up happened. You're there. This guy tweets you. What can you do differently? Well, we talked about it a little bit before, right? But um, I'm going to reference last week's episode on trust and psychological safety and how do you cultivate it in the workplace. And one of the things that we talked about was replacing blame with curiosity, right? So one of the ways that Elon could have chose to engage with this tweet is just to be like, oh, hey, I'm so sorry to hear that that happened. Um, I don't fully understand like what happened or where the ball was dropped, but why don't you DM me? Like, let's have a conversation and I'll investigate it for you. So showing responsiveness, right? And just showing curiosity and a desire to get to a resolution. And honestly, an acknowledgement that this is not the standard against which we want to be judged, right? So I think there's like a lot of companies and a lot of people who are in this positional level of authority who um, come from a place of like defensiveness don't want to say the words, I'm sorry, right? It's almost like taboo at like certain levels, but that's why, again, it's so powerful, right? Saying that you're sorry communicates that this is not the standard against which we measure ourselves. And this is not the standard against which we want to be measured against. We're better than this, right? And we dropped the ball this time. And for that, I am sorry. And so all that's left now is for me to make it right, right? And I think like if Elon had come out of the gate with something along the lines of a statement like that, I mean, my perception of him, it would be tough to reconcile that with like my other data points of him, but it would be the first data point on a path to redemption of him in my mind is that like, oh, maybe he's learning some stuff. Look at you, Elon. Um, but anyway, that's that's my thoughts. The ultimate character arc we, we can see. <laughs> Wouldn't that be so awkward? We publish this podcast episode and then Elon finds like, a completely new way of engaging with people. And then I'm like, I don't know if we can leave this up, you guys. I, I have confidence that it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. I mean, I would love to see it. I would love Me it. too. Me too. <laughs> Sarah, what do you think Elon could have done differently in his response? I think, you know, Scott mentioned, I'm sorry. I think we could do an entire series, an entire season on just the power of, I'm sorry. And, you know, because what's done is done, right? And so I think, you know, as a reaction, saying that could just be so powerful because he, because he has power and influence, people listen. And like so many times I've said before, it's, he was reactive. He was reacting to a situation and it was a very visceral reaction. And most people, especially here in the United States, because we have a culture of just like, go, go, go execute, execute, execute. All we care about is results. 
it's this rush and we forget that when we see something like that alarms us to just breathe. One of the techniques that I've uh, shared with other leaders in one of my graduate classes that I teach is this idea of taking a drink of water. So what you do is if someone comes into your office or, you know, you get into a meeting and they're, and they're fired up about something, you know, they're upset and your initial instinct is to fire back like he did always have bottled water out or a cup of, uh, most of us have water bottles, right? That's just totally a thing. Now I, I have two sitting right in front of me, but what you do is you pause long enough to take a sip of water because guess what happens when you sip water? You can't hyperventilate and drink water at the same time. It's not possible, but it also is the act of taking something in and swallowing it calms your nervous system down. And so what he could have done is just taking a sip of water. How long does that take? Two seconds? And then respond because it just lowers that visceral response long enough for there to be an opportunity for him to change the way he responds to that. So water is my, is my final answer. (laughs) (laughs) I always have water. So nice. Yeah. Oh, and it works so well too. If you have someone, I, I used to have, um, folks come into my office, very heated about issues sometimes. And I would always say, can I get you a bottle of water? And, and if they, if they were very emotional and heated and I knew they were going to say something that they would regret, I'd hand, I always had the bottles of water underneath my desk. You can get them, you know, at store bulk store for really cheap, hand them a bottle of water. I'd, you know, uh, unscrew it for them. And then I'd be like, I'm going to use the restroom. I'll be right back. And I'd leave. And it was only just, and usually I'd just like take a lap go to my secretary, say hi, walk around the office for a couple seconds, come back. And it was just long enough for them to drink the water and calm down. And the responses started to change once I created water as an intervention with getting people (laughs) to just relax uh, their mind, their body, because I don't know when you read this, like you can almost like see the face that he had when he's writing this, like scrunched up nose, really upset. You know, he might be turning red shoulders are, you know, all the way to his ears. It was a very visceral, raw response. And so um, I would highly recommend he hydrates. Sarah, were you ever concerned somebody was going to throw the water at you when you came back in? Um, No, I never thought about that. I'm glad I'm not doing that job where I'm in person anymore because now I would be afraid. Thank you, Skylar. That was the first thing that I thought when you said, I have two bottles of water. What, like one for drinking and one for hurling? Like just to... Right? (laughs) <laughs> no, uh, no, they never, they never, you know what? I think a lot of it is the energy I brought, which was like super calm. Cause I knew they were upset. And the other thing is like, you always have to remember that people's are emotions is, is awful as what he said was it's coming from somewhere, you know, it mm-hmm. doesn't just like 
there's not just this complete download from, you know, it's coming from somewhere. And Mm -hmm. so, um, whatever you feel, it's valid for you to feel that way because it's an emotion and we're human beings, but your response to people and sharing those feelings out loud and getting defensive, that's where he really took a wrong turn. Um, and I think I want to go back to to what you and Scott said about just saying sorry. I think I hate now that just a, saying I'm sorry has now turned into like a legal admittance of like guilt or your company's downfall or that you're responsible. I mean, in this case, Twitter was responsible for laying this person off. But I think a lot of times were legally advised to not say, I'm sorry, because it says, oh, then you are in the wrong. So I'd love to hear from lawyers, like, can we please say that we're sorry for somebody feeling a certain way and then move on and not have that admittance? I don't don't know that lawyers are ever going to tell you that. I mean, maybe there are some out there that will, but like, I think... I think like lawyers are, are really, um, they're optimized for reducing your liability and making them, making that as bulletproof as possible. Right. And so it's coming from a really good place, but you know, I think what ends up happening is the more layers of protection that you put on there, the, the more the effect is actually counterintuitive, right? Like if, um, so I'll actually, I'm going to fumble this because it's a book I haven't written. It's a book I haven't read in a while, but there's a book out there called I Love You More Than My Dog by Jean Bliss. Jean Bliss is um, a, well, she was a longtime chief customer officer for some leading retail brands. She now has her own company and she speaks about customer experience. Um, but this was one of the books that I read as part of my service recovery research back in the day. And she told a story in her book about a medical facility. And I forget what kind of like medical facility it was, like what kind of services they offered. But when there was, when there was a, an event with like, with significant like medical liability where there was fault on the side of this medical facility, what they would do is they would bake a pie and give it to the, like to either the impacted party or the family of that party. And it would come with a handwritten apology note. They would actually say the words, I'm sorry. And it was a personalized gesture and they were admitting what they could have done differently. And what do you think happened to liability claims after they implemented this policy? Did they go up or down? I'm guessing down. I hope so. Yes, absolutely. I would be happy with pie. So, <laughs> absolutely. Right. And like, I think we've been conditioned to think that if you say you're sorry, people are going to be like, I gotcha. Like, you know, it's like, I gotcha. You said it. This is an instant lotto ticket for me. I'm suing you. I have your I'm sorry in writing and it's handwritten on top of that, you know? And like people would just be like so excited. Like that's what we're told is the inevitability of what will happen. And maybe that's happened like a couple of times, notably, but the goal is not for zero defects. The goal is not for like zero, you know, instances of you know, being held accountable for, you know, malpractice or whatever. The goal is for a reduction in it. And like on the flip side, like that gesture 
depending on the nature of the issue, might actually convert me to a promoter like of that institution, right? As long as it wasn't like, you know, detrimentally life-changing in a really negative way. And that's actually part of the research of service recovery in general. The research that in of service recovery across multiple industries and multiple contexts is that if you do service recovery well, if you admit the things that you did wrong, and if you try your best to restore confidence of the person that you negatively impacted, what happens in a lot of cases is you actually restore satisfaction to levels that were higher than if a problem never occurred to begin with, you know? And I think like that's the power of accountability and vulnerability and seeing other people as human beings beings, and treating them with respect. It resonates with us at a core level. And the more that our society progresses towards devaluing it and not engaging in those behaviors, the brighter that light shines, the more it resonates, you know? And I think that this is, I mean, not to get on my consulting high horse, but, you know, it's a shameless self-promotion of unity and company. Like that's what we help organizations to understand is how much they think they're doing the right thing by depersonalizing the workplace and stripping it of its humanity so that we can focus on the work exclusively. But what you're really doing is just shooting yourself in the foot because your customers are humans, your people are humans, and they want to be treated as humans. And if you do it, you're not going to be able to necessarily predict the outcomes, but you got to believe it's going to come back to you tenfold. So I think now what I've learned is that Elon Musk should invest in a pie company and, you know, just start sending pies out to all of the people that he is maybe uh, affected by this. I would also personally like a pie, so <laughs> that would be great. Uh, but I think that's all the time we have today to talk about it. And thank you so much for listening and going to therapy with us today to discuss the liter- latest Twitter fiasco. If you are a Twitter employee, we would love to hear your thoughts and kind of how you're doing. And we will see you next time on Workplace Therapy. 